Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. Here's a conversation you never want to miss because uh, our next guest or our first guest today is one of our favorite guests. We've spoken many times with the parliamentary budget officer, Monsieur Yves Giroux about the goings-on in the nation's capital, what they're doing with our money. It's not their money. It's your money, my money, Mr. Giroux's money. He told us one day if the spending in in Ottawa is not, shall we say, uh, carefully done, he doesn't sleep well. And we know now, right, 40% of Canadians are not sleeping well because of their personal economic realities. Uh, Mr. Giroux, how are you doing? I'm good. And you? Fine. Are you sleeping well? Is, is the money being spent properly? Well, I'd say they are very good pills for that. <laughs> so, <laughs> yes. Oh, my God. Pharmaceuticals for everything. Um, let's, let me start. Well, first of all, I want to start because people have asked me this. You don't have any uh, allegiance or you have no um, leaning toward any political party. You are completely nonpartisan in your office, and that's what it's all about, right? Totally. That's one of the requirements of the job. In fact, I was screened on the basis of never having contributed or supported any political party whatsoever. Yeah, it's hard to support any of them, frankly, but that's another story for another day. <laughs> no comment. <laughs> I have lots of comments. Let's start, though, with the Canadian economy. You said uh, not long ago that you're expecting it to stagnate and the federal deficit to balloon to $36.5 billion this year. That was in October. How do things look today? Yeah. Well, today look today things look roughly the same. We still expect the economy to stagnate. Well, we are in a period of stagnation. So we said in the second half of 2023 and um, through most of 2024. So we expect growth next year, 2024, to be about 0.7 percent. And unemployment rate to edge up to reach about 6% by the end of 2024, or it could be sooner, but for, for the year, it should average 6%. The good news in all that is if the economy slows down and the unemployment rate goes up, it means that inflation will probably also go down. And that will allow the Bank of Canada, or should, allow the bank to reduce or start reducing its benchmark interest rate. And we expect that, based on the economic fundamentals, that could start happening in the spring of 2024. So that will be welcome news for many, many persons. Mm -hmm. How dependent is um, what you just told us may happen, which would help the economy, how dependent on that is what the government decides to do as far as spending is concerned, and the finance minister's um, false statement is not far away. Mr. Trudeau has said that he has always, his government has always spent responsibly. That's another topic as well. And I'll ask you, have they, as far as you're concerned, 
And how significant will the uh, fall economic update be? Well, the update will be important for for many people, including for the bank, because if the federal government, as well as provincial governments, spend and increase spending, it makes the bank's job that much more difficult, because if the economy is turning at full capacity and there's still capacity constraints in the economy, and you have governments in the country that increase their spending, it's adding pressures to 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 the in, to inflation so it makes the bank's job a little bit more difficult so it will be important or interesting to see in the fall update on Tuesday whether there is additional spending or whether spending is maintained at the pace at which it was expected in the budget my personal take is that it will be difficult for the government to maintain spending or even reduce it because of the pressures it's faced with, notably on the creation of a disabilities benefit, which was promised and was made into um, uh, uh, legislation with virtually no details, but there'll be pressure to announce details, and the uh, commitment to introduce a national pharmacare program, which would cost significant amounts of money. So there'll be, and these are just two of the pressures the government is faced with. So my bet is that government spending will probably increase either in the fall update or in the budget, the spring budget. Mm. Now, you issued a report this week on the pausing of the fuel charge on heating oil or the carbon tax and the doubling of the rural top-up rate for fuel charge against, again, the carbon tax rebates as costing the government $755 million. Can you provide us what, a little more detail on what you found and the implications of that? Because we know what the political implications are. It could cost them um, more trouble. It cause, could cause more trouble for the Trudeau government that are already in. But what are some of the other facts that we need to know about this particular development? So um, reducing or eliminating the carbon tax from oil or uh, home heating oil will, in fact, not cost much to the government because all the the, the money the government collects uh, from the carbon tax is returned to households. So when the government decides, as it did recently, to exempt some types of fuel from the carbon tax, it just means that there's fewer dollars to return to households. So we expect that in the current fiscal year, it's about $200 million less in carbon tax that households will have to pay, and $250 million next year as the carbon tax increases, and rising to about $327 million in 2026-27. So we have taken the assumption that it will be financed by a reduction of the carbon rebate that households get in provinces where the carbon tax applies. So it costs nothing to the government. It costs money to people who will receive slightly lower climate incentive uh, rebates. So cost neutral for the government. The doubling of the rural supplement, that's that's a question mark that we have. Uh, We don't know exactly how it will be financed. There's a a lack of details on that. Um, It could be financed by reducing the amounts that non-urban people get. It could be financed through a reduction in the spending that goes to indigenous communities, small businesses, and farmers to help them adapt to climate change. 
or it could be financed from government general revenues. We don't know about that. And that's a cost of $300 million in the next fiscal year, 2024-25, rising to $500 million in 2029-2030. So, but no, no, no details as to the source of funds for the doubling of the rural supplement. Let me ask you about this report on the subsidies for EV battery manufacturing plants in Canada. Subsidies from the federal government, if I understand it correctly, f- uh, from Ontario and Quebec taxpayers. Murky number, or the details are murky. $37.7 billion was the estimate. Your report this week suggests the actual subsidy number is $5.8 billion higher. And that's after you reported that the federal and Ontario governments won't break even on EV battery deals with Volkswagen and Stellantis for 20 years. Not a good deal, huh? Well, <laughs> at least 20 years, and 20 years assumes that these plants run at full capacity from the moment they reach that full capacity and even well after the subsidies are eliminated or expired. So that's that, that's optimistic, to say the least, even when we say 20 years. But governments investing or spending on specific sectors is usually not done with a perspective of necessarily getting their money back. It's to favor some strategic sectors, which is what governments have been saying. And they are also saying that by investing in these now three EV battery plants, this will create a whole new ecosystem that would otherwise not have happened uh, had these plants not been located in Canada irrespective of the fact that the auto sector in North America is highly integrated. Proof of that is that suppliers provide parts uh, for U.S. plants that are south of the border or even Mexican plants. So all that to say, it's, um, it's, it's a lot of optimism on the part of people who have invested or who want to invest from the government's perspective in these, in these plants hoping to create a new ecosystem. I'd be very happy if it was indeed the case, but we'll never know if it does happen, whether it would have happened without the subsidies. Yeah. It's a pretty big miss, though, isn't it? When when they're estimating the subsidies at $37.7 billion, and your office and your report shows the actual subsidy number is likely to be $5.86, uh, $5.8 billion higher. Let's round it up to $6 billion higher. That's a big miss. Uh, I, I think it's not necessarily a miss. I think it's done in all consciousness. They didn't want to consider these additional costs. And what we've added is the fact that these subsidies will get special treatment. Usually in under Canadian tax legislation, subsidies of that nature are taxable in the hands of the recipient. So companies who get benefit uh, subsidies also have to pay tax if they turn a profit, obviously, on these subsidies. But the government has been saying, no, these subsidies will get special treatment to ensure that the same benefits or subsidies are available as would be in the U.S., where it's non-taxable. We'll ensure that these specific subsidies are not taxable. So it adds to the cost because otherwise there would be collecting taxes. So uh, I think governments full well know that, but they chosen not to highlight that aspect in their reporting of the cost. Okay. So what uh, final question for you. What's your greatest concern 
as parliamentary budget officer. Apart from what we've spoken about, about federal government spending or handling of taxpayers' money, we have about 60 to 75 seconds. Um, I have two big concerns. So the first one is the the fact that every time we have a fiscal document, for example, a budget or a, a fall economic statement, we've, we're presented with a, a track for the deficit in the outer years, as well as expenditures. But every time there's a subsequent document, budget or fall economic statement, spending is revised upwards and upwards and upwards. So that's one concern. There seems to be only way, only one way for government spending it. So it, it's up. And it's not a bad thing in and of itself, but the government, I think, should be transparent about that. The second concern is the lack of productivity growth in the Canadian economy. And that's that's how a country becomes wealthier and its citizens. And we have seen stagnation in productivity growth and GDP per capita. So collectively, we are poorer than than the Americans on a, on a per capita basis. And there doesn't seem to be much concern about that, the fact that we're getting poorer than, than the Americans and the gap is not, is not getting fixed or plugged. It's, in fact, staying the same or widening. So that's concerning for me because if we don't do anything, we'll end up poorer, significantly poorer than the Americans in, in a couple or several years. Let's talk about politics. Leger polling of Canadians, with results this week, show the Liberals and Trudeau in significant trouble with voters nationally and badly trailing the Conservatives and Mr. Polyev. I'm just looking at uh, a couple of numbers here. Satisfaction with Trudeau's government. Question was, are you very satisfied, somewhat satisfied, somewhat dissatisfied, or very dissatisfied with the Canadian government led by Justin Trudeau? This is important. Ready for this one? This is important. Everybody in the country, listen up here. Ontario, total satisfied, 29%. Ontario, total dissatisfied, dissatisfied, 63%. Quebec, total satisfied, 34%. Total dissatisfied, 56%. Andrew Anz is Executive Vice President for Central Canada for Leisure Marketing, and he joins us on The Roy Green Show. Uh, Andrew, that has to be music to Mr. Polyev's ears. Hi, Roy. Yeah, Hi. Great to be uh, great to be on the on your show. It's uh, yeah. This is a, uh, some tough news for uh, for the prime minister for sure. As you uh, you went through the numbers, um, you know the saddest dissatisfaction with uh, with the government sixty three percent. His personal, uh, you know, impressions sixty one percent of Canadians have a negative impression. A third of Canadians, 36%, just over a third, have a very negative impression. And um, when we ask the question, 51% say he should uh, he should resign. Um, and even when you break that down by the ballot, the 24% of Liberals are uh, are actually of the view that uh, uh, maybe he should uh, he should resign. So it's uh, these are challenging times for the Prime Minister in terms of uh, in terms of his personal situation. Yeah, there comes a time, doesn't there, Andrew, where you just can't recover from the bad news and the bad numbers. There's just no way to come back. And I think Brian Mulroney found that in 1993. He walked away. Other prime ministers and premiers have said, I'm done. 
I'll give somebody else a chance before the election. Maybe we can win the election. Is he, do you think that he's in a situation now, looking at all the numbers that you've broken down in the poll, is Justin Trudeau in that position or close to it? I think he is close to it. Um, you know, Roy, I think, um, you know, when I look at, at where where some of these negatives are coming from, they're, they're, they're quite high amongst, uh, amongst female voters. They're, they're quite high amongst voters 18 to 34. As you noted, even in, in, in places like uh, Quebec and Atlantic Canada, he's got some, uh, some serious problems. These are core constituencies of his when you think back to 20, you know, 2014, 2015, when, when he came, uh, came onto the scene. And, and so, so that's problematic. And I think the other thing, you know, Roy, you, you sort of have to appreciate, he has to really convince a lot of Canadians that he uh, he 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 can do better, and he he's 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 on a different path. But the problem is, a lot of Canadians they're not listening to him anymore. Mm-hmm. I think they're starting to tune uh, you know tune him out. And and to your point, that makes the that makes it very challenging to come back. Uh, you know, Canadians are you don't you don't particularly spend a lot of time listening and considering what an individual is saying when you've determined that either you're you're simply tired of him, he should move on, or you're quite angry with him uh, and you want him gone. But either way, it's uh, getting the message through that uh, that he can he can change and he has changed is going to be very challenging. Yeah, I, I tweeted earlier this week at the Roy Green Show that it's one thing when it's bad when voters laugh at you or get angry at you. It's impossible when they turn their backs on you. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly, and and um, and you know the, the thing, the other thing that's sort of interesting when you know you have to think back with with the prime minister is that it's such a different time. Twenty fifteen, twenty sixteen, Canada was a different place. The world was a different place, and and uh, you know the the issues that that he uh, he was able to wade into and take on as his own. Uh, you know, it's sort of fit for him. Um, you know, the other side of this pandemic, the world is just not, it's not the same place, the world in Canada. And the issues that uh, that he's now being asked to to lead on and, and address for Canadians, uh, whether it's housing affordability, uh, just general affordability and inflation, uh, health care, these aren't issues that he um, he was elected on in 2015 as being sort of the uh, the person to uh, to deal with, and uh, I think I think a lot of Canadians just feel that he just doesn't have the uh, just doesn't have the answers on these tough issues. And, but you have to be able to pivot when you're in that position, right? Yep. You have to be able to say I'm versatile enough to say understand this is an issue. These are the issues that trouble you, and so we're going to deal with them. And if the electorate says to you, if the voters say, we don't care about this, we care about this, take care of this, then you have to listen or you're going to be gone. Um, also, Andrew, just let's conclude with this. Changing the leader of the Liberal Party, I'm reading from your release. Changing the leader of the Liberal Party will not have a significant impact on the voters' intentions. Are the Liberals done? Well, I, I think I think that that's that's a question now that you're starting to see seep into that that liberal caucus. You're seeing sort of some you know anxieties around uh, around things. You saw movement on a, on you know their flagship climate change policy. They you know have significantly sort of undermined that. Uh, you know again at the behest of I think their caucus. Um, 
It's it's difficult. I mean, you know, sure, you can change the leader. Uh, I'm in I'm in Manitoba, Roy, and and you know, we we did that a couple years ago. We had an unpopular uh, premier, and we made a move. And you have a very small window, and it's 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 not easy if uh, to try to uh, to try to do a reset there. Um, and part of the problem is is that you know when Justin Trudeau leaves, it's not like the problems that that many of us in Canada, the cost of living and the housing affordability and health care, it's not like those problems leave with him. They're still there for the government and yeah. for that new leader. But you know, so, uh, but you know, Andrew, I do think that it's, um, it, uh, you know, I, I think for some liberals, they'll say it's, it's a, at least it's a chance. And, and I, you know, probably wouldn't disagree, but it's a, I think it's still a, it's becoming a long shot as these numbers, uh, you know, continue double-digit leads for the Conservatives and yeah. people start to make their mind. Well, he's got a baggage car full of problems that are trailing around and problems of his own creation. You know, the ethics violations, the convictions right. by, by, the very, by the very ethics commissioners he put in place without consulting with the opposition parties, which parliamentary law requires. Mr. Trudeau is the architect of his own misery, so I don't feel bad for him at all. But because you, when you're in that position, you have an opportunity to continue to grow the, the the support of the people. And if you don't do it, that means you haven't done your job. You do your job, though, and very well, Andrew. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you coming on the show. Uh, I always enjoy the time uh, on your program, Roy. And have a good rest of the uh, rest of your day. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it? <clears throat> a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Sports is my uh, first love in life. Now, the last 30-odd years, news has tied it, number one for me, but my first love has always been sports. I just wanted to be about four inches taller. I'm six one. I wanted to be about four inches taller, and I think at 230 pounds, I was okay. I was a good weight, but I was too damn slow. That was the problem. I was hell on wheels, Kelly. I was in hell on wheels for 10 yards. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. How many times have I heard a story like that, Roy? Oh, right? God. <laughs> I know. I just, why couldn't I have been endowed with a little more speed? That's all I wanted, a little more. I could run over people. I had the size to run over people, but I couldn't get to them. Well, I'll reveal something to you, Roy. Yes. I never envisioned ever having a, a sporting life uh, as a player or as a broadcaster. What I wanted to do, I wanted to be a park warden in Banff or Jasper. That was my my big goal in life and this stupid game of hockey got in the way because that was, you know, my mom and dad, they're fantastic parents. We didn't have much money. And so what we could afford was a camping trip uh, yearly to Banff, Jasper, Lake Louise, maybe Yoho or something like that. And if I remember correctly, uh, it was only a week long, but they gave me a love of the mountains, my mom and dad. And so I, every time I can, I still go there. Uh, just, just, and I, I relive those beautiful memories growing up in Edmonton. Oh, it's such a magnificent part of the world. Because I, I, I lived and worked in Calgary for a year, yeah, and uh, CHQR, and oh, cool. uh, I used to love just going. You know that drive from Calgary? It's like an hour to 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 uh, 
to yeah. the foothills, right? And, yeah. and well, I, I just loved it. It was just amazing. It is literally, Roy, one hour from our front driveway to the town of Bath. Not to the park gates, but right into the town of Bath. So uh, I wouldn't say we go as often as we used to, but even today we had to drop some things off for the kids. And uh, from the Ring Road in Calgary, just a spectacular view of the Canadian Rockies. Yeah, nothing quite like it. It's truly mm-hmm. amazing. I'm going to be going back to uh, where I was born and uh, partly grew up, Switzerland, yep. in just a few weeks. So oh, my. I haven't been Beautiful. Back. Yeah. Talk about mountains, man. Tell you. Mm-hmm. First time I skied was as a kid. Yep. My, my little Swiss buddies, I was 10 years old, right? I'd never been on skis <laughs> in my life. They take me to the top oh, of this. Cool. They take me to the top of this Alp and they go, boom, they're gone. <laughs> I'm 10 years old. Well, I'm going too. Right. <laughs> One way or the other, I'll get down the mountain. <laughs> it was spectacular. But, you know, you're 10 years old. By the end of the day, you're skiing almost like they are because you're made of right. rubber at that yeah, age. Exactly. Today, you'd be peeling me off some, along with the bark, off some tree. <laughs> Kelly Rudy is uh, is joining us, Hockey Night in Canada analyst, former Los Angeles Kings goaltender, one of the really good ones. Um, and and I, I'm really glad to talk to you. Uh, and yeah. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm such a I'm such a hockey fan. I've got my Montreal Canadiens cap with me now because I think sure. that's good luck. Huh? It has to be. We all think we have good luck. But what a weird start, Kelly, I think, to the uh, to the 23 NHL season. Mm-hmm. Beginning with the Oilers, we just played Ken Holland, who I think is in trouble anyway, on the firing of Jay Woodcroft. Um, but it, it began with, with these surprises. Again, none more so surprising than the performance of the Oilers. What, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I'm, I was shocked by the start that they had. Um, and, you know, I think that's in part why Woodcroft was let go, even though I thought last year or last week, uh, I think Elliot Friedman said this also, that uh, with that win in Seattle, I thought that might buy him some time because they're going home for two uh, games, uh, Islanders and Seattle again. If they could uh, win those, I thought maybe Woodcroft would be safe, but the Oilers obviously thought differently. I do think um, they could have sustained a stretch like that if it would have been maybe in January and they had gotten off to a great start and they might have been first or second in the conference or division. But unfortunately, with a bad start in today's NHL, it's nearly impossible to recover. Now, they've won three in a row, and that's a good thing. But I was just, I was totally shocked by the firing. I think uh, the good thing about Woodcroft is that he'll get hired, I think, somewhere pretty well, pretty soon, because he's known as a great coach and just circumstances were against him after that bad start, but he will find employment here soon. Yeah. Calgary Flames, new head coach for the season. And then Jonathan yep. Huberdeau finds himself benched for a period by the new coach. Yeah. Uh, he's, he's got a big contract. I know he scored, uh, once he got his uh, goal and an assist uh, just the other night. Yes. On Thursday, yep. Yeah. So how do you assess, so let's look at the Alberta teams. Uh, you're in Calgary. Yeah. How do you assess the Flames? Well, they're coming on. I, I think they're four one and one in their last six, uh, making some progress slowly. I wouldn't say that uh, you know that they're going to go on a, a big heater here necessarily, but they're certainly making a lot of progress. Um, they have a four game road trip coming uh, up after they play tonight at home against the Islanders. Uh, that's a very important road trip. Uh, but what they're doing better, Roy, now is they're uh, not turning the puck over as often because that certainly was really killing them early. And uh, Ryan Husker, their head coach, talked about almost 
every single day and uh, just reinforcing the fact that you can't do that, in particular against really good teams. Uh, and then, you know, that benching of Huberto, that's really a brave thing to do. And I know everybody's saying, well, Huska's a different guy than Daryl Sutter and, and he needed to be. But that's something when you have your highest paid player and you're benching him in one game, it was uh, the entire third period plus the last 230, I think, of the uh, second period. So, you know, when you're talking about a head coach making a statement, um, that's that's a big one. And it wasn't to punish or embarrass Huberto. We even talked about it on the air how it was it was really hard to watch. It was almost sad or heartbreaking to watch Huberto sitting on the end of the bench. But it needed to be done. And uh, it your play and your ice time dictated by how well you play. And so that was the message that had to be sent. Now, it was really cool on Thursday, Roy. As you mentioned, he scored and he had an assist. And there was a big uh, ovation, really, by the uh, people in the saddle dome here in Calgary. And they recognized his struggles. And uh, for the most part, they're very supportive. And I think that went a long way for Huberto. Hopefully he can dig himself out of the... the slumpies in and play like he normally can. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to bounce around the, uh, we're not going to do yep. this geographically. We'll just bounce around with the Canadian teams. But uh, this question just occurred to me. I used to watch you with the, with the, with the LA Kings mm-hmm. and he had the bandana, right? I mean, this was your okay. trademark. Was, <laughs> I know it's Kelly. He's got a bandana. Um, <laughs> and, and you would take your hockey stick and you'd lay it on top of the goal. Mm-hmm. And I thought he's pissed off. Uh, I thought uh, he's upset. Something's gone on. He's upset. Okay. Right? I was just, I was just, I didn't know you then. I just thought, right. Is this my, I try to watch. Body language means a lot to me. Sure. But yeah, what's, what's harder for you? What's more difficult for you? What, what was the harder of the two? Preparing for a game yeah. or preparing for a broadcast? Oh, boy. That's a, such a great question. And they are very similar. Um, I would think. Maybe preparing for a game was somewhat easier because I had years of experience uh, before I got to the National Hockey League in, in you know, sort of honing my craft and understanding how I needed to get ready and how I had to prepare physically and mentally. And so I had years of experience. Uh, and then when I moved into broadcasting, of course, I had no training whatsoever. I just went uh, cold into it and... You know, I didn't even know any of the the sayings or terminology, you know, behind the scenes. Like, I didn't know what a VO was, like a voiceover. I didn't know any of these things. And so I had to learn on my feet. And I think it was good because I didn't have any bad habits at that point. I've uh, I've uh, gained a whole bunch over the years. But I, think <laughs> I don't think do. so. <laughs> but I still get nervous. Uh, I You know, every single broadcast, Roy, I get nervous for. And I... That's a good thing for me. I don't know if it's for everybody, but it, I know when I'm going to the, uh, whether it's the studio or the rink to do a game as a color analyst, I know I might be in trouble if I'm not nervous enough yep. because that is a feeling I like. Yep. It's a little uncomfortable, but I feel like that means I have some nervous energy, which is a good thing. But that's a great question. I still say uh, broadcasting is way harder for me. Um, and, uh, it's a challenge every day. Well, I'm sure broadcasting's way harder than being a goalie in the NHL. Come on, it's not even close. <laughs> right. <laughs> but but I will tell you, I finally found out what VO means. <laughs> <laughs> I know all these different things. And, you know, early on, like, as I said, I had no uh, training. And so I was doing, uh, you know, the telestrator. I was learning just literally 
on my own. I had a few people, you know, behind the scenes helping me, but I just had that uh, that pen and I'd draw all over the screen and then it became more and more complex. And now finally, uh, we don't do it live anymore because it's just so complex, but it, it's such a cool machine to use and learn and and it was a big part of my broadcasting career. Yeah, I know you're an excellent, really excellent broadcaster. You're a great goaltender and an excellent, you are an excellent broadcaster. I always thought you were really one of the best. But what, what really matters, Kelly, and I want to say this, yeah. we have to get to the other Canadian teams. But yeah. thank, for, thank you for all you do to raise the profile and awareness about mental health and dispel the negative images and and, and the uh, and the stereotypes. Thanks for what you do for that. Wow, that's very kind, Roy. Uh, I say that it's the best work that my family and I have ever done. So uh, put aside my hockey career and my broadcasting career, I think the work we do uh, raising awareness about mental health is uh, so important. I get so much positive feedback. And in fact, Roy, that's one of the reasons why I've taken this weekend off. I'm not going to be in Toronto. I'm not going to be on the show just to make sure I'm on top of it because it's been around uh, me again lately and I'm really, really busy and I have to make sure that I take care of myself. Yes, sir, you do. I mean, I had my health challenge earlier this year, still do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, that's one thing I've learned is mm-hmm. that I'm going to take care of myself. That's definitely the case. Uh, and by the way, I, I still get nervous coming into a studio. I've done over 100,000 interviews. You'd think I'd be yeah. kind of relaxed about it now. But but I'm not. I still got tingles. You know, it's just it's it's good. It's good. It's good to feel that. Okay. That's why you're still around, Roy, because you care and you you worry about your craft and uh, you put in the work, and that's a good thing. Yeah, and I'm this. I'm not. This is not a throwaway phrase. I really care about the listeners. Really care. Yep. That's that's yep. that's most important to me. Let's let's look at uh, the rest of the uh, NHL teams, the Canadian teams. We have about five minutes or so. Sure. Uh, let's move to the Winnipeg Jets. Strong team, I keep hearing, but it's tough to entice NHL stars to move to Winnipeg. Yeah, but they are a good group. I watched a game last night, and boy, was that ever an exciting game. I thought Buffalo, in fact, outplayed Winnipeg. Hellebuck was amazing in the third period. Uh, I like that Winnipeg team. Uh, Scott Scott Arneal's doing a nice job in the absence of Rick Bonus, and we're wishing the Bonus family all the best. Uh, But this is a really good Winnipeg team. I like them. Uh, I think they're going to continue to build uh, towards something really good. And, uh, you know, when you have a guy like Hellebuck, I don't know if I've told you this or shared this with you before, Roy, but Hellebuck happens to be one of my favorite goaltenders to watch for a number of different reasons. His play on ice, yes, but his leadership skills and how I've watched him grow off the ice. You know, when I first met him, uh, I I know he wouldn't even remember this, but it was at a morning skate in Winnipeg. It might have been his first or second year. And uh, I went into the dressing room to chat with him, and he was very quiet. And I'm thinking, oh, boy, this is a tough game, and this is a really tough position, goalie, if – if you, you're not really like a general, if you're not in command, it's a really difficult position. You're, you know, you're, there's all these sorts of different things coming your way and you have to handle all sorts of adversity. And boy, am I ever pleased to say that he has really grown into that leadership role. In my opinion, he's the voice of reason for that team. He stands in front of the camera. He gives you great answers, very thoughtful, and so I love that guy. Wonderful. So we've got about two and a half minutes to go through the rest of them. Uh, yep. the, the Canucks, are they for real? Yes, they are. And one of the reasons why their coach, and I've known Rick Tockett since 1987 on the Canada Cup team, 
and I played with him in L.A., he's not afraid of conflict. And that's one of the things you have to be, in particular when you're trying to change a lot of things about uh, the organization. You've got to address certain things, and he, he certainly is not afraid of doing that. All right. The Ottawa Senators, everybody thought, hey, this could be the breakout year for them, and it still could. They, they look good. They're strong. They're young. They're uh, have a stronger organization now. Yeah. Um, what what a little bit of a slow start. What do you think? Yeah, they're trending in the right direction. They won again today in Sweden. Um, they've won four in a row now. That's a big step for them because in yeah. the last two years, I believe they failed miserably in November. So this is a, a really good month for them to get on a bit of a roll. They're young, as you mentioned. They're they're learning how to win. I think that's their next step, and they've done a nice job recently. So, 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 so <laughs> I can't laugh because a lot of listeners in Toronto. Yep. But at the Maple Leafs, every year we're going to win the cup. And each year, <laughs> same old story. <laughs> so is this the year they could do it, do you think? Well, I sure. Uh, I'm one of the believers. I, that's a really good organization. Yeah, they're, they are. The, you know, their their talent is really, really good. Uh, you know, I am cheering for Samsonov, and I know you you followed the story and stuff. He he talked about oh boy, about three weeks ago about having his own mental health issues and not doing yes. well, and he's uh, fighting hard to get through this stretch. But uh, if they're going to have success, they're going to need him to uh, find his game and. And hopefully does that, but they are, you know, they're so talented. They're they're a very good team. Yeah, nobody knows unless you go through it. What nope. in, what insecurity can do to you? Yes, that's right. Nobody knows. Yep. So so now the most important hockey team in the world is next. There you go. <laughs> well, I well yeah, they are the Montreal Canadiens. Yeah, I've got my Habs hat here. Yeah, and. Uh, do you like what they're doing? Is this rebuild a working, do you think, or is it just a just a failed experiment? No, I do like it. Uh, they're struggling uh, recently, which kind of surprised me because uh, I like their team. Uh, in fact, I was there on Tuesday for the Flames. Flames uh, won that one two to one. Uh, Jacob Markson was brilliant, but I like uh, I like Montreal a lot. I, you know, every time you see certain players live, they they just pop right. And Caulfield, my gosh, he was great that game. He he didn't score, but he was brilliant. And uh, he's got a great release. I know he's, you know, he and Suzuki, they're not apart, right? Or they're apart right now. And there are times where they play together. They're uh, terrific together. But I do like the idea of not playing them together and just sort of finding their own way without each other. Uh, Slavkovsky seems like he's making some uh, some ground. He's gaining a little bit of traction. He's not too bad on Tuesday. And I am a big fan of Montembeau. He is really, for a guy that was picked up on waivers a couple of years ago, he is really, really improved. And, and he's a legit goaltender that uh, could be a number one down the road. So the parole board of this country has a not too glorious history of releasing Dangerous convicted criminals, including murderers, including, oh yeah, George Lovey. George Lovey, who murdered the parents of Don Edwards. And we've talked to Don on a number of occasions, and I've known the, the Edwards family for, for many years. 
almost from the the day that their the parents were murdered. And Don Edwards joins us because he and uh, his wife Tennis and other family members, I believe, were supposed to be at uh, an in-person parole board hearing into Lovey receiving more freedoms. Remember now. Two convictions of first-degree murder. He's already got an apartment. He has an apartment. Spends five days a week there. He just wants to have complete run of the of the world. And he's still considered to be a moderate risk to reoffend. That's kind of like saying medium security prison. There are convicted first-degree murderers in medium security prisons. Don Edwards joins us. Is back with us on the program, Don. Thank you for, for coming back on. And I, um, I was reading the statement from Tannis, your wife, um, to the parole board, and it's so disturbing. In the uh, the deaths of your parents, Arnold and Donna, and the second sentence is not, not a single day goes by that I do not fear for my life and my family's life because of lovey. I'm, I'm asking, I'm an, an adding those last words. But that's your reality, isn't it, Dom? Absolutely, Roy. Thank you for having us it's back again. It's uh, As you know, it's always a trying time as we prepare for another parole hearing on December 8th. And uh, as uh, Tannis had mentioned in possibly her parole in her victim impact statement, uh, Initially, it was supposed to be in the presence of the Edwards family, but uh, it was decided that now it's going to be virtually. Um, so our suspicions are is the Parole Board of Canada is uh, uh, sort of taking the heartless way out of uh, sort of avoiding us and uh, to avoid us from being in the room with Lovey. Um, and uh, so we were shocked by that. We're disappointed, grossly disappointed. But, um, you know, we're moving on. We've written our victim impact statements. They've been submitted to the Parole Board of Canada. And, uh, you know, our hands are tied at this point. And you were informed uh, by way of uh, electronic uh, communication, right? That is correct. So, too bad. But uh, there will be no in-person meeting, uh, Parole Board hearing. We're just going to do this virtually. And that's your opportunity to engage. And I, I reading from Tannis's uh, victim's impact statement, I would have this concern as well. You ask yourself, have they made up their minds? Have they already decided what they're going to do before holding the hearing? And so the most simple way for them, unpalatable for the rest of us, dangerous for the rest of us, but simple for them, is to just not hold the hearing in person and then just to issue their their decision. What are you going to do about it? You'll be thousands of miles away. Well, we can't do anything about it. The the the, the sad thing about this, Roy, is that uh, at the last parole hearing, um, you know, the, his uh, caseworker, risk assessment uh, official, uh, has deemed him to be a moderate to low risk uh, offender. But as we all know, is that murderers uh, in many times across Canada reoffend and. Uh, you know, we're in a situation that, uh, as you mentioned, our hands are, are really tight on this whole thing. Um, 
we uh, pour our hearts out in these victim impact statements. Uh, they're extremely difficult to write. They're paralyzing. Um, they take days and days because our minds are so consumed of trying to clearly and accurately um, voice our thoughts, our, our, where our heart is. We know we are a, th a threat. If we look back on the case going back to 1991, and Kerry Lovey's testimony, he threatened to uh, to kidnap and kill, you know, harm our children, and uh, you know, our uh, my nieces and nephews, and uh, it's it, it's really uh, heartbreaking to see the position of the Pro Board of Canada of how they have done this. We know that Lovey has been sentenced to two counts of first degree murder and one count of attempted first degree murder, um, and uh, he before that he also, as you know. Uh, sexually assaulted and held my sister um, in confinement with a deadly weapon. So um, do we have concerns? Absolutely. Um, the other thing that's really so disturbing about this in the last, uh, in his last uh, request for day visits to various areas, uh, Brantford is one, Grimsby is another. Uh, Grimsby is approximately 12 miles from where my parents used to reside. Uh, Brantford is approximately eight miles from the town of Caledonia, where my wife is originally from, and many, many Edwards families still reside. Uh, he asked to you know, go to Hamilton, pass through Hamilton, and as you know, Roy, that's where a couple siblings live. So, um, mm -hmm. in other words, if they release him, he can be living next door to my siblings. Um, so, it, is it a concern? You bet. Yeah. And, um, you know, we're uh, doing our best efforts to try and uh, bring awareness to the parole board that uh, hopefully we have some people that have some common sense and uh, do not take a, a heartless uh, uh, sit, uh, situation and try and uh, you know dwell on it to give the offender all the rights in the world uh, a free pass. They don't listen, do they? they? They just don't listen. I've heard this from families and individuals who've spoken before the parole board in the past, trying to make sure that society, and they are protected from individuals who've committed capital crimes, murder, or other very serious criminal offenses against them. And what happens is, and I know that there are people across this country who will be shocked, and we've said this many times on the program, but they'll still be shocked, that the offender, in this case, George Lovey, has the right, and this is in your wife Tannis's uh, victim's impact statement, has the right to read the victim's impact statement two weeks prior to the hearing. The, the, the convicted murderer gets to read the victim's, your victim's impact statement two weeks prior to the hearing. Boy, I don't imagine that that could potentially cause any difficulty. Do you, do you, Don? That's got to be, that's no problem there, right? Well, we, we you know. It's awful. It, it's, it's, it, it, it's sad in a lot of ways that he gets to read our victim impact statements two weeks in advance, but we get nothing in the way of information on the offender. We receive nothing. Um, and when I say nothing, um, we don't get to read his statement. Um, he has shown, as we know, no compassion, no consideration for us. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it's really odd in many ways. We know that there are many holes and flaws in uh, correction services of Canada. Um, and during his last uh, um, release uh, to uh, do a day visit or a couple of days of visit, um, Lovey volunteered to wear an ankle bracelet and the Corrections Canada or his caseworker 
uh, did not act upon that. And so they have no idea where he went, what he did, where he was, um, where he stopped. They have no idea what he did uh, because they don't follow him. They're not tracking him. Uh, there is no tracking method. He's simply out, uh, and uh, he may say that he's visiting a particular area, but uh, there's no, um, there's no uh, um, anywhere to track exactly where he was, what he did. Um, we know nothing. That's madness. Nothing. That's just madness. I, I'm still, I still, I still get shaken by the fact, and I understand you completely, Don, in your book that you're, you're, you're writing after the game, victim of violence. It speaks volumes that you have said on the air that you don't have the same pride in this country you had, and you don't have the pride. You had when you wore the Team Canada sweater and played for Canada because of what has happened over the last 32 years since your parents were murdered by George Lovey, who by the parole board seems to be more like his agents than the safeguard, safeguarders, if you will, of, of the community and your family who he has threatened. They don't seem to be interested in, uh, they don't just seem to have an interest on. Well, here's what, in my last uh, paragraph of my statement, Roy, of this upcoming parole hearing, one of the things I say that if uh, George Dutt Lovey does receive full uh, parole and does do harm to the Edwards family or the general public, then the um, Canada's federal government, the uh, Justice System of Canada, the uh, Parole Board of Canada, and its associates who were assigned the case, and the Corrections Canada Services and their assigned associates will be f held fully accountable. Um, you know, it's sometimes, uh, you know, we look at this as sort of a situation these people uh, may hide. You know, yes, I understand they have tough decisions to make, but at the same time, they also have to have compassion for the victims. And uh, as you mentioned, uh, we, we often see he is. Mahaffey and French family have seen with Paul Bernardo, uh, there is no compassion. In fact, there's very little compassion for them. Uh, we went through we went through a number of parole hearings. As recently as the last one, uh, when we heard that uh, Lovey threatened to kill his case, you know, stab his, uh, his caseworker, and he said it was a slip of the tongue. Well, as I mentioned in my statement, was, it was also a gaffe that he stabbed my father five times, and he shot my mother twice. Was that also a gaffe? So, um, you know, we're, we're, in, we're in a situation that uh, they don't realize what the family goes through. The, the pain, the suffering, the stress we've all endured, mind-shattering, is, is just mind-shattering. The grief counseling, the ongoing and continuous uh, physician visits, having to depend daily on prescribed stress and anxiety medication, therapy meetings with psychiatrists, and private security measures that we have all been forced to undertake are endless. Add to that, uh, many of the family members, as you know, now struggle with post-traumatic stress disorder, which is a direct result of Lovey's actions. There's another family that now uh, has Parkinson's disease that, you know, is life-threatening and deadly. And uh, that is all uh, directly related to uh, stress. So to think that Lovey hasn't impacted our family and changed our, our family's life forever uh, would be an understatement. Yeah. Um, I'm just reading the uh, 
victim's impact statement of Tannis. I don't have yours in front of me, but I, I do have hers. And I know you share the same concerns. Let me just read a couple of questions that you want answers to. So Lovey gets full parole, if that's what the parole board decides, and you guys are pushed aside. Questions asked, does Lovey have a well-paying job? It takes most citizens to work two jobs in order to survive this country's expensive and excessive cost of living. Who pays for his rent, his food, his gas, his clothes, his car, and insurance, or purchase of bus ticket? Since Lovey has not worked a day in his life, it would indicate that he didn't contribute to CPP. So, no financial assistance then. How will Lovey afford to live in society? Government assistance? Years ago, Lovey reported he had $8,000 in the bank. We can presume that money has long been spent. Uh, other questions were, how would Lovey be manageable and how would he be managed? Lives are at stake, yet we cannot review the conditions and perimeters that the offender and his caseworkers are proposing. And why are we not privy, the Edwards family, to a risk management plan that's been drawn up by the offender's caseworkers? Is it realistic and who manages the risks Lovey poses to the public? All of that is, those questions need to be answered. And Lovey gets to see all of this. Two weeks before the parole board hearing that was to be in person, that's no longer in person, is going to be done by video. I hate to say this, but Don, it sounds to me like the fix is in. You would certainly think so. I'd like to know, you know, Roy, and I come at it from a little different angle as we all do, but uh, I would like to know, you know, when Lovey volunteered to wear an ankle bracelet, who made the decision with Corrections Canada that he didn't have to, or it was, or was it missed? Um, why was there no enforcement or tracking bonder? Why were there no regional police departments in these localities not con uh, not contacted that Lovey was going to visit there? Um, who was responsible for tracking Lovey's daily life um, to believe to, or trust the Corrections Canada services um, monitors? Did an in-depth review and thorough examination of the dangerous felons' travels would be a gross misunderestimation. To believe that there is no holes in the correction services of Canada system, you either have to be dumb, an idiot, or recklessly stupid. Now, I don't know how better we we say it, but if these people are sitting there and they, you know, they have any knowledge or any understanding of the justice system and to release someone like Lovey into uh, society. Um, I would put them all in that last category, dumb, an idiot, or recklessly stupid. Yeah. Uh, no argument from he. And likely, and I know, no argument from the vast majority, probably all of our listeners. It is, it is, a, it is very sad. It's very disturbing. And, and one thing to remember is that victims' families, including your family, Don, I know this because I served with your Sister Jessie on uh, Caveat, the, the Board of Caveat, a National Crime Victims Support Group that was um, started by Priscilla de Villiers after her daughter Nina was abducted and murdered. And the Caveat would uh, issue report cards on the government's um, performance on victims' issues and crime. And the government got too many negative uh, responses, and so what they did was they just canceled the funding. Don't like your message? No more money. Bye-bye. And that's, that's just, it's just outrageous. Don, so it's December 8, right? Yes, sir. By video. Not in yes, person. Sir. Outrageous. Let's you and I talk again uh, afterward, okay? Hopefully you're able to join us that day, Roy, and be able to uh, sit in and monitor if you're available. Um, and uh, I've sent out uh, 
request of various media people that I know that have followed and been advocates of our case. And uh, they're all welcome. I spoke to the people with uh, victim services last week. And uh, so it's, it's openly available to anybody who okay. wants to attend from the media, okay. uh, along with our family and friends. So that's where we are. I'll be there. Thank you, Roy. I'll be there, though. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.